From KVMR Nevada City and in partnership with Freed, welcome to a special edition of Disability Wrap. I'm Anna Acton with my co-host Carl Sigmund. Last week, we brought you part one of our conversation on the disproportional effects the coronavirus pandemic is having on people with disabilities and older adults. This week, we are bringing you part two. We spoke with Monet Clark, a healer and eco-feminist performance-based video and photographic artist right here in Nevada City. Meg O'Connell, founder and CEO of Global Disability Inclusion. Dr. Leonard Abadudo, director of the Mind Institute at UC Davis, and Denny Chan, a senior staff attorney at Justice and Aging. We recorded this conversation on September 21st, right as we reached the grim milestone of 200,000 deaths from COVID-19 here in the United States. You can go to our website, freed.org slash disabilitywrap to listen to part one of our conversation. We started part two of the conversation by asking Denny to talk about the crisis standard of care guidelines here in California. Sure, very good question. Takes me back uh, a few months now. Um, but the crisis care standards, um, and this, you know, particularly for folks who are listening online and not even in California, every state um, may have their own crisis care standards. Um, and these technically are policy documents that uh, tell providers, such as hospitals and um, healthcare systems, how to decide who gets that last ventilator, or how to decide who gets that last hospital bed. Um, you know, obviously during COVID-19, there existed and there still continues to exist in some communities, shortages of really important life-saving medical resources. Um, and so crisis care standards generally lay out uh, some policies for how hospitals should make that decision when you're down to patient A and patient B, who are you gonna give the ventilator to? Um, so back in May or June of this year, California did release, might have even been in April, um, its first crisis care standards. Um, and this was policy to California hospitals and California healthcare systems. And as you noted, Anna, rightfully so, disability and aging advocates across the state were deeply concerned um, because the policies actually codified um, and put into writing put into policy um, lots of ableist and ageist thoughts um, and, and really problematic beliefs. So, you know, it allowed, for example, um, if it went through this elaborate scoring system and then at the very end, if your score and the other person's score was the same, it allowed for the use of age as a tiebreaker. Um, so really putting that ageist sort of really problematic belief front and center as part of policy guidance to healthcare providers. Um, similarly, there's a lot of focus on long-term survivability, um, not just related. So, you know, medical, medical uh, pro professionals could evaluate and use long-term prognosis as a factor to decide who should get that ventilator. Well, that's always gonna cut against people with disabilities and older adults, particularly older adults of color um, who are experiencing multiple forms of oppression. So it was really problematic guidance. Um, and so much so that disability and aging advocates banded together to say, look, California, we can do better. We should be doing better. Um, you know, of all states in the union, we should not have this be our policy. Um, and fortunately that, you know, that those concerns were received by the department who engaged with a number of stakeholders to really closely revisit that policy. 
Um, now, you know, in the most recent draft or the most the final draft of the policy, um, you know, providers can't take age into account. In fact, age, is, age and disability are both listed as protected characteristics. Um, and also, you know, we can only take into account short-term prognosis um, of an individual's likelihood to recover from COVID-19. So it's a very specific and targeted analysis, which it should be. Um, but it really does highlight, I think, the, the ways in which these systems are, if we don't monitor and advocate, um, they're set up to include ableist and ageist things as part of policy guidance. So it's a really good example of, you know, even as we're responding to the pandemic, even as we know that there's disproportionate impact on certain people, we write these policies that will exacerbate those outcomes. It, it, it was um, particularly just um, has been interesting through the process of COVID-19 and situations such as this, where we see that kind of underlying systemic, um, um, you know, around people with disabilities and older adults about who do we value as having a worthy life, I'm just going to say, or not. Um, and we've seen it in other conversations um, happening around COVID-19. Um, can you speak uh, to um, access to personal care attendants, IHSS, um, in this time and, and how that's um, been difficult for people who rely on those long-term service and support systems to get their needs met? Sure. Um, so that's another really important piece of this. We know that older adults and people with disabilities rely on not just care in long-term care settings um, and facilities, but, you know, care in the home, which is where most people prefer to get their care um, and that really have access to the home and community-based services um, that they need to stay healthy in the home. I think my, you know, when I think about this question and this topic, I think about my own grandma um, who, you know, is duly eligible and um, has a personal care attendant come help her with activities of daily living on a weekly basis. Um, and she told me, quite frankly, at the beginning of the pandemic, she said, I don't trust them. I don't trust anyone coming in here. So you have that piece of it is like, is that person asymptomatic or potentially a carrier? You have another piece of it where caregivers might not want to go and provide care anymore. And so there's a really complicated sort of question. I think what the situation poses is it shines a light on, and this is a point that we were raising before, on the sort of inadequacies of our system, right? And when our, um, in a moment when we are asked to respond quickly and efficiently and have the most flexibilities possible, we're dealing with outdated computer systems, we're dealing with all these sort of like vestiges of not 2020 policies and systems in one of the most technologically advanced states in the union um, with one of the most robust economies in the world. So, you know, I think there's an understandable amount of concern and fear from consumers who, you know, are rightfully worried if they get COVID, like this is it for them. Um, but I think that there's a lot, of, lot more sort of looking into the future that we can do to think about how do we deliver home and community-based services? Are we actually allowing for the flexibilities that people need in this time? Um, and that's a, that's a whole other sort of question, but I think that that's kind of what I think in-home care and specifically 
um, personal care attendance and the issue of COVID has raised for me. I'll also add, you know, a sort of similar or related question to this is around hospital support person policies. Um, you know, so when someone goes from the community into a hospital, um, and we're not really just talking about visitation, right? This isn't just the, the right to see someone um, which understandably should be curbed during a pandemic to reduce community spread. This is about making sure the person at the hospital gets support they need, um, which is a critical issue for people with disabilities and older adults. And what we've seen is, despite actually good policy guidance from the local um, State Department of Public Health, the California Department of Public Health, is that hospital providers across the, the state either don't have good policies, they're overly restrictive and don't allow people the support persons when they need it, or um, they have good policies that match the state guidance, but then in practice, nurses, who is ever in charge of the hospital floor at that moment, you're subject to the whims of their discretion, right? And so that's another area where I see, you know, specifically a COVID overlay um, that is really concerning if we're thinking about people getting the support they need at a time where they are most susceptible and sort of at their weakest, um, is that, you know, we have hospitals across the state denying people the support that they need in that very moment. Thank you very much, Denny. And, and Lynn, what would you add to this conversation about supports? Yeah, well, I think one of the, the things, and I think Meg touched on a number of things that are kind of things that we've learned that are hopeful things we've learned about the future, that we can work from home, we can be productive. Um, and um, I think that technology, um, we've learned that technology can allow us to do a lot more than we realize. Just to give the concrete examples, we transitioned uh, at the Mind Institute and at UC Davis Health in general to doing uh, video visits with, uh, with individuals for a whole host of conditions pretty quickly. And it works really well for a lot of things. I think also for people just knowing that they have someone they can connect with when they don't wanna leave home um, or can't leave home, I think that that was really important. We learned that the schools, you know, did their best to get laptop computers to students and all of those things. Um, and if you look more generally, there's a movement in, in kind of people who are building housing to think about aging in place, right? And so that having smart homes and all of those things. And so I think technology really is part of our, uh, part of our answer to have uh, more robust systems, right? But I think what we need to do now is we need to make sure that we invest in learning how to adapt those maximally so that they're effective for people so that they can be rather than just say, okay, you know, sign on online and, and do your classwork. I mean, we really need to help families know how to adapt that, how to support their children when they're in school. I think we can use uh, virtual reality to do some job training at home and all these sorts of things. So I think there's a whole host of things that technology can do if we do it thoughtfully, if we start to uh, do research to know what, it, what things it works for, what things it doesn't work for, who it works for, and, and under what conditions. And so I think that there really is an opportunity to use this as a way of not just preparing for the next pandemic or the next natural disaster, but thinking about how we can use technology to make more robust systems of care for people and to give them more options where they have control. But I, again, I don't think technology is the answer for everything, but I think that if we really are thoughtful about it and invested, I think that we can do a lot more. Um, I also think that this also shows that we really need to think more about how we 
uh, kind of manage uh, the whole system of direct care. We know that people that provide direct care to people with disabilities are way underpaid, right? And so that they don't stay in the system. We also know that it's a haphazard patchwork system for uh, training and for monitoring. And so, you know, so we don't know. So like at, at uh, most hospital systems now, if you're staff and you're coming into work, you know, you complete a, a checklist about symptoms and who you've been exposed to, your temperatures taken and all of these things. Uh, and so there are standardized screening for everyone. We don't have standardized screening for direct care workers. And so Denny's grandma, who was concerned about having someone come in, should be concerned because there's no guarantee that we've done the right things. And so, again, this is really, you know, like, like every crisis, we can react to it in the moment and then learn nothing from it, or we can learn something and prepare. And I think this one really has afforded us an opportunity again, not to just prepare for the next crisis, but to really begin to change our systems of care so that they are more uh, accessible, that they um, are more cost-effective, that they're more equitable. Um, and I think, so this, this is really kind of, there are so many lessons, positive lessons we can take from this, and it's really up to us as a society to invest in this. Um, and I think it will make long-term good sense. It's just a question whether we have kind of the political will to do what's gonna be difficult in the short term to make this happen. Thank you so much, Lynn, for bringing up these issues. I think there's been a lot of concerns uh, around parents and, and children with, with um, uh, you know, uh, that with disabilities in the school system of how they're getting their needs met online and in a virtual setting. We also have seen uh, when it comes to people, especially with cognitive disabilities, maybe traumatic brain injuries, developmental disabilities, that sometimes accessing those virtual online platforms can be problematic, right? There's additional supports and services needed to be able to do that effectively. And we all know that, you know, access to virtual services, which many, right, many services are going virtual, like you mentioned, healthcare, but, but a whole, whole, lots of different kinds of types of services, um, that it's not just the technology, right? It's not just the laptop, it is the skills, of how to use that technology. And then it's also the access to broadband and, and high-speed internet, right? So there's these multiple kind of pieces that need to be addressed. And I think the question will be, will these be lessons learned? Um, will we learn these lessons and be able to apply them so that we can make um, the systems more effective? Um, before we move on to Meg, I just am going to ask for, for Lenny or Denny, um, is this an opportunity um, for um, community-based living. We see that, you know, there's higher death rates in congregate settings like nursing homes. Many of us have been working for a long time around deinstitutionalization and getting people in the community where they can live, work, and play. And so is there an opportunity here to look more and at community-based services and really prevent that institutionalization um, and keep people in the home? I can start by saying I think this is the opportunity. I think it is a time-limited opportunity. And if we don't take the opportunity now, we will miss it if it if when the window closes. Um, we, we've seen, you know, we've talked on this program now about the disparate uh, rates of infection and death in nursing facilities. Even if you set that aside, nursing facilities don't work for lots of reasons for lots of people. Um, so this is a yet another really important reason 
to ensure that we need to have a whole rethinking and reimagining around our law, our, our care system more broadly, how we deliver care, um, that it shouldn't be, we should really be, you know, prioritizing deinstitutionalization and creating an incentive system that doesn't wait and catch people at the very end, uh, last stage of their life. Um, so I think, you know, Anna, your question is absolutely spot on. This is the opportunity and we need to mobilize and act on this opportunity before it's too late. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I think that um, we've seen, again, I mean, all of the things we, we, we knew in many respects are wrong with our systems are just more dramatically apparent now. And I think um, this is an opportunity to rethink how we do that. But I do think um, that this means that um, self-advocates and um, advocacy organizations and policymakers will need to be really vigilant now more than ever, because I do think that um, the fiscal pressures are going to be so real that I think um, we're going to have to really be very, uh, well, we'll just need to be vigilant to make sure that decisions that are made are not going to continue to disproportionately affect people with disabilities uh, or, the, or aging populations or people of color or people who don't speak English and all of those sorts of things that we know have been happening. And so I think, um, I think I, I, I'm optimistic that there have been great lessons and that there are some uh, solutions that we can begin to develop. I think we're just going to have to be vigilant uh, to make sure that we make the right decisions as a, a community. Thank you, Len. I want to bring Meg back into the conversation. Meg, one of the most interesting parts of your report, I think, is your discussion of the role of the media in all of this. I want to read from the report a minute. You write, quote, one of the most concerning things during the first few months of COVID-19 has been the refrain from medical experts and the media about who the virus will affect. According to the CDC, older adults and people of any age who have serious underlying medical conditions might be at higher risk for severe illness from COVID-19. You go on to write, quote, Every news report we see, hear, or read echoes this phrase effortlessly and casually. This statement implies, it is not us, it is the weak and the elderly, end quote. Can you expand on this? What impact does this have on people with and without disabilities and on society as a whole? Well, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow for us, right? Because it sends that message that we've been talking about of you're other, you're less than, you don't really matter, or those, those poor people, they're going to be affected, but the rest of us strong people, we don't have to worry about it as much. And it continues to create that ableism, uh, discrimination that we see across the board, and messaging that people with disabilities don't matter. And it's the statistics are something like 40% of the population are individuals with underlying health conditions. It's not the most significantly disabled person that you have ever met. It is your brother that has asthma. It's your sister that is going through breast cancer and chemotherapy. It is your neighbor who um, has a heart condition and will be impacted by it. So, I found it particularly frustrating and actually quite maddening with the callousness and casualness that this was thrown out because 
it was really sending the message of, well, those people, let them shelter in place, let them stay home, I'm gonna go about my business because it's not gonna impact me. And I think early on, if we had messaged this very differently uh, as a collective issue and concern for our country and quite frankly, the world, uh, we wouldn't be where we are now. We would have had a very different response if we had been communicating as we're, you know, the messages were, we're all in this together, but not really. It's, yeah, we're all being impacted, but really, you don't really have to worry about it. You don't really have to wear a mask because it's not going to be you that's impacted. And I think we need to really be careful about the language that we choose when we're talking about people with disabilities and our aging population and how we're going to support them. It shouldn't be, oh, we have to tolerate them. We're all one society. Everyone, every single person has something to contribute and something of value to this country and to the world. And just because you don't understand it or understand how to relate to it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So I just hope that as we continue down this path and we say that our world is dramatically changing, that we're looking at these things to truly understand how we can change them for the better and ensure that those of us who are strong are continuing to support those of us that may not be as strong and offer solutions of support versus the callous behavior of, oh, well, it doesn't really matter because they're not, you know, to Denny, you said it earlier, oh, you're weak anyway, your, your life is likely not to be as long as someone else's, so it doesn't really matter. Well, I guarantee you of the 200,000 people that have died, if 40% of them had underlying health conditions, there are dozens of people that will tell you that their lives matter. Can I interject? Thank you. Yes, I was going to go to you. Perfect. Thank you, Monet. <laughs> um, I think one of the interesting things that's come out of this, um, as, as we're talking about spotlights on, you know, our weaknesses as a country, as a culture, the systems that need um, attention, is this idea um, of th this individualist um, American kind of mythology um, and it has its you know it has its great points you're not bound by tradition and you can keep reinventing yourself and so forth but the fallacy is that somehow you're you're an individual and you're not part of a community you're not part of a, a global community you're not part of an ecosystem if we don't take care of the people that have underlying conditions as we see our whole economy is getting completely destroyed because of this idea that oh it's only going to affect the weak so we can run around without masks on because so you know too bad for them and as a person that has an underlying condition it's been very personally painful and everybody i know who has disabilities has you know really struggled with this callousness that we see all around where people do not care to protect the next person. But it's also been presented in a way where a lot of people just don't understand that they're not, that, that by their, their actions are not being protective of the next person. But the, the point I'm, I really wanna make is that it's actually harmed all of us by behaving in that way because I have a friend who's a, 
he's an engineer um, by um, profession and uh, literally a rocket scientist, worked for NASA, he's retired now, but he's done um, uh, so many hundreds of hours of data analysis on COVID-19 and so forth. And he was right in the beginning saying, this is what we need to do immediately. This is what we need to implement and then we'll get past it. And he's, he's Asian, he has a family in Taiwan and you know they got past it in a few months so they had SARS before, but everybody had masks. They had very, they had um, you know tracking for anybody. Everyone was tested everywhere. You had 14 days quarantine if you come into the country and you were given food and everything by the government and masks and everything to do that. And you know they're past it now. And now they're all back to normal and they never shut down businesses. So this idea of not taking care of our most vulnerable has actually tanked all kinds of businesses of perfectly healthy people. So there's a real lesson to be learned about taking care of everyone actually takes care of everyone, if that makes sense. You've been listening to our conversation about the disproportional effects the coronavirus pandemic is having on older adults and people with disabilities. The last voice you heard was Monet Clark, a healer and eco-feminist performance-based video and photographic artist right here in Nevada City. We also spec with Meg O'Donnell, founder and CEO of Global Disability Inclusion, Dr. Leonard Abadudo, and director of the Mind Institute at UC Davis, and Jenny Chan, a senior staff attorney at Justice and Aging. We just played you part two of our conversation. Go to our website, freed.org slash disability wrap to listen to the first part, which we aired last week. You may have noticed that this is a new time slot for Disability Wrap here on KVMR. We have traditionally aired the show from noon to 1 p.m. on the first Friday of the month. We are switching to a new time slot, 6.30 to 7 p.m. on the first Monday of the month. Last week was our first show in this new time slot. This week and next, we are bringing you two special editions of the show. You just heard part two of our conversation about the disproportional effects the coronavirus pandemic is having on older adults and people with disabilities. Next Monday, October 19th, at 6.30 p.m., we will bring you highlights from Nevada County's Education Workshop for Voters with Disabilities. This workshop will take place via Zoom on Friday. October 16th, at 2.30 p.m. To find out how to participate in that workshop, go to free.org slash vote. And we want to make one quick community announcement. If you or someone you know uses life-sustaining medical devices such as a CPAP machine, nebulizer, oxygen concentrator, power wheelchair, or other powered devices, and are not registered for PG&E's Medical Baseline Program, please contact Brian at 530-477-3333, extension 206, for assistance in applying for the Medical Baseline Program. Due to COVID-19, a physician's signature is not required for enrollment in this program at this time. This show is produced and edited by my co-host Carl Sigmund. Special thanks to Sam Gertis for her support. To listen to this show again, go to freed.org slash disability wrap or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anna Acton with Carl Sigmund for another edition of Disability Wrap.